Whoa! Howdy there. Almost didn't see you again. Recently, I wrote a provocative op-ed about the Seattle Freeze, and I received the digital equivalent of a biblical stoning for stepping into the public square with a less than polite message. I regret the edginess of my words and understand the defensiveness around an outsider challenging the culture of a place. Aside from the vitriol, that the, <laughs> the outcome of the piece has been fascinating. More than 30 of you have reached out to me via social media to call me a corn cob and post images from some guy named Drill. Hey, see. Others, they've met me on the street and thrown dung at me. But all that being said, I guess I'm still just a small town country cowboy trying to learn the ways of the big city. Well, I guess I better be hitting the dusty trail. See y'all around sometime. All right, welcome back to Seattle Sucks, a podcast about hating the city, the city we, love. we love. Oh yeah, oh yeah, we messed that up. All right, as you might have guessed from that awful intro, uh, Colin is not on the boat again. Yeah, he is still ill. <laughs> he is dying once again <laughs> because he has children. What a mistake! Yeah, I keep telling him to take that zinc. He never listens. <laughs> so you know, we got a great podcast ahead. A very exciting guest yeah, coming up. We have. Uh, Sean Scott, you may have heard of him. He is the candidate for District 4, Seattle City Council, who is going to win. If you get out there and pound that pavement and uh, put those ballots in the mail. Uh, that Yeah, we've got that interview. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, okay, but also the... Okay, the cow, the cowgirl in the Seattle Times, she's uh, back. Yeah, Greg. The cowgirl is back. And... Uh, she's giving us a Seattle Freeze update because apparently in the city, uh, the Seattle Times has nothing better to do than to give this small town uh, country cowgirl slash lawyer uh, editorial space to, to complain about the people in the city who, you know, in a lot of ways probably deserve it. But just to give oh, you yeah. a little taste, uh, you know, uh, just just to be clear, we come down on no one's side in this <laughs> battle between her and Seattle. We're against everyone. <laughs> Truly a story only of villains. Uh, it might be like a new movie that's come out recently that has got everybody all riled up. Save, I'm talking save about it for the Patreon. I'm talking about Trolls too. Okay. All right, but yeah, you know, she uh, lets us know that how newcomers feel and act as small potatoes compared to the pretense of being woke when so many are left behind. A truly progressive region would never tolerate the outcomes we see in Seattle in areas like housing and education. Well, it sounds oh. like she's got a lot of good ideas that we agree with, Greg. Yeah, Can't that, see where this is going to okay. go wrong at all. No, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, 100%. I'm there. I'm there with the cowgirl. I'm here for it. Um, yeah. But um, let's save that. Um, that'll be a sequel to a an earlier episode where we 
uh, read the Cowgirls first editorial. So uh, you're all listening because you want to hear uh, Sean Scott. So yeah, so we'll save it for the Patreon, which you guys can listen to for the low, low price of one hundred dollars a month. Is that right, Greg? Something like that. All right, go ahead. Uh, yeah, so let's go to the tape. Roll the tape, roll Colin. The roll the tape, Colin. <laughs> Colin, roll the tape. Colin? Brian, I've been knocking on a lot of doors lately, talking to a lot of strangers, and I've been telling them all about Sean Scott, candidate for District 4 in the Seattle City Council. Many people are already very excited about the campaign, of course. Others are very receptive to a bold left message. But when I do come across, uh, say, an anti-tax small business tyrant or a confused tech libertarian, I, uh, as you might imagine if you've heard this podcast, am more than willing to get into it with them on, say, Amazon's net zero tax liability, uh, all of our housing stock being subject to a global free market, uh, the case for comprehensive municipal climate action in the absence of a federal response, and I think I've done an okay job, but before I leave them, I always put it back in their hands by encouraging them to get out to one of these seemingly infinite forums and debates where they can hear Sean in his own words. Because, I assure them, the man himself is pretty goddamn convincing, which is why we have him here live on the boat. Sean Scott, we are in your thrall. Tell us, um, you know, where... This campaign's going where you want to take it. What's, yeah, man. What's the future look like? Yeah, definitely. Well, as of tomorrow, it's going to be four weeks out from election day. Yeah, uh, four Tuesdays out from election day, and this is when our campaign is going to need to be at its best as far as our voter outreach. So we're at this point in time canvassing more often than we are not. We canvass four day, four nights a week, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and then Saturdays and Sundays. Um, and so I would encourage everybody who's listening to this podcast if you are excited by um, some of the ideas that um, I've tried to put forward with the the help of, of Seattle Sucks. You all always ask really, really great questions. Would encourage people to keep listening to this podcast. Um, but if you also want to stay engaged with the campaign these this last month, um, you just go to scott2019.com, sign up to volunteer. Um, it sounds like you had a pretty fun time, a pretty good experience, mm-hmm. yeah, you I would say. Yeah, I, I love going out there and yeah. uh, knocking on doors. It's a lot of fun. And the um, beers afterwards yeah, help, too. Yeah, yeah. That's the decompressing That's really afterwards. why I'm there. I mean, really, like, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm like a strategic, like, forward-looking thinker, so... Right. <laughs> I'm looking ahead to... You see four beers ahead. You don't only see the beer ahead of you. You yeah. see four beers down but, the line. But Sean... You're playing I'm, chess with the beer. Other I've, people are just I playing checkers with I see the beers <laughs> ahead of the beers because I'm looking ahead right. to whatever sick victory party, party right. your team is cooking up for election night. Right. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm going to be there, uh-huh. and I want to feel like I earned it, right? Right? Like I was, like, like right. I was uh, part of what went down. So right. I mean, I'm looking ahead to those beers. Now I can speak from personal experience. When you were talking earlier about the structural critique, um, it was really I had a lot of structural critiques of the impact that too much beer can have on your digestive system after the primary <laughs> night party, um, because that was a good you know, I think that alcohol had its had a very very potent structural critique of the human <laughs> digestive system that I'm still grappling with. You know, so in that sense, you know, the beer was was quite socialist. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, and to be clear, to volunteer for these events, you don't have to be in District 4. No, absolutely you not. You can just be somebody who's interested, excited, wants to wants to come, right? Right, yeah. And, you know, we're <clears throat> we're, joke, we're telling jokes right now about um, the, the post-canvas beers and things like that, but we have families that come out with um, their kids and they mm-hmm. go door-to-door. Um, we have vol- many volunteers who are parents who... Um, use this as a real opportunity to get get the young ones civically engaged yeah. and get them familiar with canvassing. Yeah, absolutely. So um, all the parents yeah. who listen to this podcast with your children, right. <laughs> <laughs> people, uh, apologies are, for most of are, the podcasts. Are we going to sing "Rockabye Baby" at the, yeah. Yeah. the yeah, end of this? Uh, naturally, but, yeah. but I, I can seriously um, <clears throat> endorse uh, going out and canvassing. It's uh, not difficult. It is fun. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, people are. Uh, if you ask an American mm-hmm. a question about like their opinion on something, right. a lot of times at first they're they're just working their way up to getting rid of you, right. and then you ask what they think right. about just any, and then the, the, the whole tone shifts, and they're like, right. "Well, let's talk for twenty minutes." Well, now, I am an know? expert on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's great, and it's great, it's fun. I love doing that, and right. but a lot of people, you know, um, just you know, was out what Saturday in the U District, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, tons of people just like, yeah, I know all about mm-hmm. Sean. Yeah, my roommates know all about right. Sean. I'll make mm-hmm. sure they right. are registered and vote. And right. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's great. It's a good time. Yeah, we love to hear it. So, I saw you at the debate on Saturday. I think a really strong contrast was drawn between you and Alex Peterson, the candidate from the fire sector, on virtually uh, maybe every issue. Uh we certainly spend a lot of time on this show talking about our housing and houselessness crisis and both the conservative and liberal reactions to it. I was like really struck by Peterson's interesting response to a question on this topic, which was basically um, homelessness. Yeah, we have to do better on homelessness. Um, Knocked it out of the park. It's not wrong. It's like this, the, the strategy there to me is, um, minimizing the scope of the problem, right? I think he also talked about, um, when talked about talking about how to better fund services, his answer was along the lines of, well, we need to audit the entire budget as a matter of course and find all the savings in there. The strategy is to minimize um, the nature of the problem to uh, forestall anyone even talking about broader uh, changes to an entire economy um, as if it's just a matter of uh, bureaucratic, you know, number crunching, little finding efficiencies here and there in small ways. I mean, that's the narrative that Peterson wants to talk about. Whereas sure. you want to talk about public housing, building public housing, right. where which is uh, you can look at that, you know, on the, f- the first level of that is, well, that's going to get someone a home but Mm -hmm. it's also putting a foot into an economy changing the terms of Mm -hmm. our housing economy by taking some of it off of a global free market right and i mean that's just a totally different scale of of talking about these problems yeah it's true i mean i you know and 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 i think that you know progressives in seattle need to understand as you're saying, the stakes for this discussion. I mean, we are in the middle of, you know, the reign of the real estate developer in chief, somebody who, um, and Donald Trump emerged from the world of real estate has thinks like 
a real estate person and how he wants to run government or run it into the ground. And it's not as if we're so distanced from that here in Seattle. I mean, I'll give you one example of this. CBRE is, you know, one of the biggest real estate holders in the city of Seattle. And um, they are a private multinational real estate firm, if I'm not mistaken, the largest in the country. My opponent was um, an employee there for some time. During that time, CBRE released a policy prospectus that explained, look, President Trump is probably going to do, you know, a few things that we don't know how it's going to impact the economy. But by and large, he's actually probably going to be good for the country because he's going to be good for the real estate market. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think we have seen enough of what it looks like to have government and social goods distributed according to the dictates of the market. So that's why we're really deliberate about talking about public housing, about social housing, about potentially using a um, newly founded regional authority um, to build more social housing in the city, um, perhaps purchasing land as it comes available on the private market. And rather than allowing private market forces like CBRE to sort of um, do what they will with those lots, get those over to not-for-profit housing providers who recognize that housing really ought to be treated as a social good. Yeah, And we don't have a lot of a lot of um, examples in this country of times where we made sustained investment in housing as a social good. But the, the most uh, visible example of when we did and the most prolonged period of when we did decide to do that, the mid-20th century, imperfect as it was, unequal as it was, racist as it was, still resulted in um, what many critics of capitalism even call the golden age of capitalism, where you had as the biggest, you know, a a rise in middle class fortunes in this country. Um, Cities were more affordable than they ever were. People had the reasonable expectation that when they were turning 23, 24, 25, that they would have the ability to purchase homes. And so we can have that kind of sustained civic investment at the local level and at the national level, obviously, again, Um, but it's going to take, I think, being really, really clear right about the fact about the reason why we don't have it now is because we're not playing by the rules of the public sector. We're not playing by the rules of a true public commitment to these social goods. We're playing by the rules of some pretty unaccountable, um, financial institutions that are thinking about how to turn a profit before they're thinking about how you're going to get, you know, more affordable rent on the first of the month. Yeah. Yeah. So I used to live in your district a long time ago, back in 2007. So I got Mm -hmm. priced out, right, you know, by a massive rent increase and have been in Shoreline ever since. And one of the things that's happening, right, is as rents go up, you know, it is not just affecting, you know, the racial demographics of the city. It's not just affecting the economic demographics of the city. It's actually affecting the political demographics of the city, right? Because right. left politics tend to be concentrated on the lower end of the economic scale. Right. And, you know, one thing, you know, somebody who's involved in a left project is if we don't do something to, you know, create public housing, to create, you know, a way for people to come back into the city. I mean, we are essentially seeding it you know, both economically and politically to the rich, right? right? Yeah, I mean, and I think it's also, we've seen it a lot philosophically too. And so I think that this race is also a, a contest of ideas as much as it's a contest of resources. I mean, our central contention, our central idea is that, you know, the government institutions that are supposed to be run for the people run best when they're run by the people. And when we need public utilities for, um, just like we have public utilities for light and water, we should have a public internet utility. Mm -hmm. Um, We could potentially have um, a Seattle Green New Deal that really remakes the rules of our economy 
um, and the rules of how things work in the city of Seattle conform more to a holistic, environmentally conscious ethic than we do to sort of these cycles of um, using and dispensing that I think we see under capitalism. So it's a philosophical um, contest that I think plays directly into the material contest. Um, and so I, th- I see those two things as really, really linked with one another. Yeah, and, and kind of what I'm hearing from you too is this idea of having a distinct political or philosophical difference of belief in that you think people actually have a right to dignified life, which means things mm-hmm. like not just a right to housing, but mm-hmm. yeah, you know, a right to be able to use mm-hmm. uh, those things that are actually required for modern society, like right. internet and stuff like that. And exactly. I think with the Green New Deal, I think to get into this idea too of public transit, mm-hmm. right? Which, you know, we had a mayor that during the uh, great squeeze downtown or whatever when Sawan was like, you know, public transit should be free and it mm-hmm. should stay free. And right. Durkin's response was, but then it wouldn't cost money. So that doesn't make sense. Right. <laughs> you know, and it's or they, you know, and, and um, the, the, the transit department was like, uh, well, yeah, that would be very popular. Yeah. Right. That, and, that's going to um, be a problem for us. And so I think, you know, as we here stand on the precipice of, uh, you know, living in Mad Max or whatever. Right, right. Sheets about. Um, yeah, maybe you talk about the Green New Deal and public transit a little bit and you know some of your proposals yeah well this is this at the same time that this is an issue we have really led on i think we were one of the first candidates if not the first to 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 really start talking in detail about what what a green new deal could look like um certainly in the d4 race and i think maybe even generally i think shama sawan's campaign may have had us beat as far as calling for a green new deal broadly by a month or two Um, but i think we we tried to put real flesh on that skeleton but but so much of the framework of this has been provided nationally by organizers that have been doing great work in the Sunrise Movement, and obviously it's an issue that AOC has championed. But also locally, you know, organizations like 350 Seattle, Got Green, Puget Sound Sage have been calling for a Seattle Green New Deal. So we really, all we tried to do was say, let's boil this down into terms that people can 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 immediately relate to in a district level city council race. We all understand that you know, the number one source of our carbon emissions comes from transit, and most of those are from people on their workaday commutes because they couldn't find enough affordable housing close to where they work, so that our investment in social housing is is tied to our climate justice strategy, which is tied to the fact that we want to encourage people to explore the, the city outside of cars, on foot, via bike, um, and by mass transit. So our endorsements from the Transit Riders Union and our support for the Orca for All program on the way to um, universally subsidized or free public transit, um, as well as building out a center city streetcar connector and taking action on building out our bike master plan. All of those are amenities that everybody wants to see, right? There'd be very few candidates I think that would disagree with any one of those things. Mm -hmm. The problem, and this is where I think we have the real edge on in talking about the Seattle Green New Deal is we've also talked about how we want to see it funded which is a more difficult conversation Mm -hmm. for many people. So we've said potentially have the city go into debt with the county, um, have a real estate speculation tax so that Mm -hmm. speculators that are building housing that is not workforce housing and that go vacant for many, many months because nobody can live in them, that behavior is disincentivized. We've talked about progressively structured congestion pricing, a little bit of a contentious issue on the left, but one that um, I'm pretty optimistic we can find a way of enacting um, such a pricing scheme in a way that doesn't hit working people who have to lead car dependent lifestyles twice by first displacing them. And then secondly, making them pay to drive back into the city that they got displaced from. Mm -hmm. So those are all, you know, it's really about, I think the Seattle green new deal is about a comprehensive vision for 
big infrastructural projects that are going to take big chunks out of, out of our city's carbon footprint, not just painting around the edges, but really taking on the biggest sources of our pollution and our biggest sources of our, of our carbon emissions and saying explicitly that we can't get there without uh, making historically the most privileged groups pay more for it. Yeah. 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 On ambitious subjects like the Seattle Green New Deal, many people I've talked to on their doorstep are broadly very supportive uh, and into it. But there's also a skepticism about the viability of that. And also, I think, a conventional wisdom, which says that a left uh, candidate or rather a council member will necessarily be isolated, divisive, <laughs> and not be able to enact the boldest parts of their agenda once they're there. So what do you say to someone with no faith in city government's ability to get big things done? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the present city council resolution, if I'm not mistaken, was passed unanimously. Um, it's not often that you see council member Bagshaw and council member Sawant um, on the same side of many issues, um, and certainly on the same side of any individual piece of legislation. Yeah. So that um, what that tells me is that there is broad consensus for ambitious environmental reforms that exist on the council is presently constructed and is presently divided. And based on how these city council races are playing out, I actually do have the sense that those divisions are actually going to shrink a little bit because okay. I think there was a general, just in the way that, you know, you have seven city council seats up for grabs. I think that, you know, Tammy Morales looks like she's got a gold carpet, um, or a red carpet sort of paved in front of her for that seat because of all the work that she's done over the last few years to establish herself in her community. Yeah. Um, council member Sawant, you know, I think the left should feel pretty confident about her ability to retain that seat. Mm -hmm. I think we're waging a really campaign, a competitive campaign here in district four. Um, and so I think there's going to be some pretty big and, and council members Mosqueda and, and Gonzalez, I should say, I think are both council members in the citywide seats that get the conversation about, needing more density as a way of combating our carbon emissions and needing that to be actual affordable housing so that if you add us in there, you're already at four or five council members that I think constitute um, a pretty vocal block. And I think more than that, a block of council members that would be really, really skilled at making the political case before the electorate about why we need some of these big reforms too. Um, so yeah, I feel I feel pretty confident that we're starting to see a sea change really in the way that we think about what is, is possible out of Seattle government. And that's certainly one of the, the main things we have tried to make people feel when they talk to our campaign or talk about our campaign is that there's so much more that we could be doing if we approached these problems at the scale that they exist and with the requisite amount of urgency. Yeah. And I think, you know, just to piggyback on Greg's question a little bit, I think if you, talk to the average person who doesn't vote, which is literally the average person, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's the vast majority of people. Mm -hmm. Their main complaint is always, uh, well, I feel like it doesn't matter what I do. And now we had a couple of years ago that exact thing played out, right? You know, we have a unanimous vote for a head tax. Mm -hmm. uh, Jeff Bezos makes a phone call and then it gets immediately repealed, right? right? And so that's a massive lesson to the average person in the city, right? That your vote really doesn't matter, right? Like, there, well, your vote might matter, but one guy's vote actually matters mm -hmm. significantly more than uh, yours. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think one of the things that in, say, 
you know, having you run, mm-hmm. right, is that you have an actual organization behind right. you that can do other things. And I guess, you know, if you could pitch maybe the benefits of actually having an mm-hmm. organization behind you that can push, right, other than mm-hmm. just being on the council itself, right? Yeah, well, I think there shouldn't be too many surprises about the fact that the EHT was repealed in the fashion that it was, because I think that, you know, there's a pretty straight line from the massive amounts of corporate campaign contributions that we mm-hmm. see in all election cycles and our political outcomes, frankly. Mm-hmm. And when, you know, there are council members whipping votes or deciding to repeal um, something like the EHT, a lot of those same council members, frankly, were some of the ones that, you know, were, were pretty responsive to the business community, let's say on the campaign trail yeah. and their races mm-hmm. so that, you know, it's it's kind of the way it works out, and it's the way that's why one of the reasons why it's important to have council members that are not accepting or not the beneficiaries of corporate campaign mm-hmm. um, spending, and also making an issue out of corporate campaign spending as well, mm-hmm. calling that out as a reason why our politics have been as regressive um, as they have been in in recent times, both nationally and and perhaps locally as well. Um, and so, at the same time, that I think it's about building on some of the progressive gains that we we have seen, it's also about showing that, again, we could be doing so much more. Um, and so that's really where an organization like DSA, without which I think my, my campaign would not have been possible. Um, some of the other organizations, like the 43rd LD mm. Democrats, honestly, have been incredibly um, consistent in this campaign in showing that even for people who who are not political independence or people who are um, outside of the two-party structure, we can still be asking so much more of people who call themselves Democrats. Because if you read through the 43rd LD Democrats' platform, just like with Seattle DSA's platform, um, there's a lot of overlap between the two of them as far as civilian oversight oversight of the police, police abolition, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. a commitment to progressive revenue a commitment to an anti-racist and actually inclusive city city. Those are, are, are goals that are held mutually by Seattle DSA and the 43rd LD Dems so that, you know, one of the things we're trying to illustrate in this race and one of the things that I hope is, you know, win or lose the legacies of this campaign is that there's just more that we could be doing. And a lot of the, the bad habits that I think we have progressives have learned as far as capitulating early um, and not asking for enough at the bargaining table while we're there, we need, we can unlearn those habits and we can make bold demands and we can win. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. When I heard, you know, in there, uh, you know, in your your list of sort of political positions that there was some agreement on with these groups, uh, the term police abolition. So I'm going to take it that you are not uh, for continuing with this absolute shit fucking police contract that completely rolled back any effort at reforming SPD. It was a, it was a really bad deal. And, um, a lot of groups at the time called it a bad deal. Yeah. I think every community yeah. group that had any connection to, uh, the consent decree basically called, came out and was like, this is, uh, not just trash. It's a complete rollback. Couldn't yeah. have said it better. Yeah. Well, uh, Peterson at the debate, uh, his take on this and a theme that came up uh, over and over throughout the debate was, you know, we as a city and as a council need to be more accountable to the cops. <laughs> but he also wanted us all to know that 
Mayor Durkin, has credibility on the issue of police reform because she was there as the U.S. attorney starting, <laughs> starting was his word, um, the consent decree process. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, as the resident idiot who has been following the consent decree since the beginning. Uh, yeah, uh, Mayor Durkin has been there, you know, since the beginning. It's like saying, you know, Adolf Eichmann has credibility on human rights because he was, you know, at the camps from the beginning. You know, it, it, it's like, yeah, you know, you don't get credit for, you know, destroying the process. You know, I'm gonna uh, the efforts that she did, but yeah, I'm gonna. For the record, push back on the, the, the comparison <laughs> of, of Durkin and, and Eichmann. Um, yeah. But I, I am going to say that you're right to um, call attention to um, my use of the word abolition, which has rankled some people in this mm-hmm. race a little bit. And it's really, really funny because people have a way of telling on themselves by getting offended by the idea of police abolition. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because what they think you're talking about is um, they're focusing not on the historical context of the word abolition, which is literally the end of slavery, which was preserved through the 13th Amendment in the Constitution and the subsequent establishment of a very, very vast criminal um, criminal justice edifice that um, has reproduced and preserved slavery in a lot of ways. That's not what they see. They hear abolition and they think what you're talking about is that um, mm-hmm. tomorrow we're going to push all cops into the ocean, which is an idea that some people have when we're talking about abolition, (laughs) we're talking about severing the links that the contemporary Mm -hmm. idea of policing and the contemporary practices of policing have to the slave state in the United Mm -hmm. States. And those are not imagined links. When, when we, we had this conversation nationally as Michelle Alexander's book, the new Jim Crow was released and, I think reabsorbed by many as a result of the emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2014 and 15. Abolition is a philosophical position that is rooted, a philosophical position that is also speaks to the material need that many communities of color have to dismantling the current criminal justice system as it exists and all the links that it has mm-hmm. to this very, yeah. very sordid past. So um, I use the word very, very deliberately, and it's interesting to see who gets queasy about it yeah. Um, because I think they're not really hearing um, the operative word there and, and the fact that we did have an abolitionist movement in this country, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe we should have another one is yeah, really absolutely. my only well, point. It's also, it goes back to um, the need to actually take a stand that addresses the true scale of the problems and right. solutions. So mm-hmm. if you're talking about police reform... You're t- mm-hmm. Again, you're talking about like the problems are in the details somewhere right. that we need, you know, better training or whatever. And right. it's been done. It's mm-hmm. not any historical analysis, like you've said, mm-hmm. like just doesn't bear out that that's going to make any difference. Right. The scale of the problem is the entire structure. I think, you know, abolition as like a rhetorical starting point says to people, gets a conversation started that it's like, no, it it is that big a problem. Even if you're right. picturing the total, like like you said, pushing all cops into the ocean, right. that's accurate in that that describes the scale right. we're talking about. Right. Now, 
the next question is, well, what does it look like? Right. And what, how is that done? But the scale is that big because the whole system is mm-hmm. patently evil. It when doesn't I, work. When I think what I'm hearing from you, Sean, right, is moving beyond this bad apples mm-hmm. theory, right? That, 100%. That we just have a couple bad actors in SPD, right? Mm-hmm. Or that we have a couple bad actors in maybe real estate, right? Right. You know, that we're actually looking at structural problems right. and that you're thing that you were bringing that is, you know, uh, you know, new for American politics, right, is actual mm-hmm. structural critique, right. you know, as opposed right, to right. just if we hit the right button, turn the right dial. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah couldn't have said it better. I got to tell you, I made the decision to attend the Seattle Police Officers Guild Public Safety Forum that's going to be happening on mm-hmm. Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Um, they reserved 20 seats for Safe Seattle, a group that has been <laughs> recognized by the King yeah. County Democrats as a hate group. Um, and I had to really go back and forth about this because on the one hand, yes, it will be very personally perhaps uncomfortable to be sure. there. I can imagine the line of questioning and the, to say nothing of the energy in the room, let's say physically. Yeah. Um, but I think I want, I want people to look back on this campaign and say, they spoke truth to power and it didn't matter where the power was. They, yeah. they, they ran their mouths about police abolition on Twitter and then they went in front of the police officers guild and said the same stuff that they were saying online to their supporters. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that amount of consistency, I want other people to really, you know, take away from this campaign that, um, there's, there's an amount of, there's an amount of, of bravery that all of us have. Mm-hmm. in confronting some of these big structural issues that we can tap into if we really have to. And so I'm going to try to lead by example on that question um, by by attending the Seattle Pol- Police Officers Guild Forum, where I think I'm probably going to be the only dissenting voice um, on mm-hmm. some pretty big questions and maybe even the only uh, minority candidate present, depending on sure, how yeah. things shake, shake out with some of the other campaigns. So... Um, I would not suggest that anybody come to that event. I yeah. would suggest that people instead come out and canvas with us. It's going to be a lot more fun. Yeah. There will not be cops yeah. unless something goes terribly wrong. Um, yeah, and it's going to be a good time. So yeah, unless we'll... you enjoy being deeply uncomfortable. <laughs> but, you know, but I agree. I think that yeah. that's one thing that like the left actually has to get over and get used to, though, mm-hmm. is no more free passes. Yeah. Right? No more free passes for right-wing shit. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think going in and being there is, is important. That's yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah, also, you know, you're going to answer a lot of questions for the electorate in your district. They're mm-hmm. going to hear you mm-hmm. speaking that truth to that power in that room. But you're also mm-hmm. going to be talking to cops who, right. you know what, I, like mm-hmm. a lot of people in this country, for the most part, I don't think mm-hmm. they're hearing the actual right. abolitionist side of the abolition argument right. very often. Exactly. You know? They're not hearing those answers. Right. They're hearing, um, you know... Like NRA mm-hmm. talking points and cop right. TikTok exactly. uh, videos. So like <laughs> tick, 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 cop, cop, cop. Yeah, know, know we've already gone down that road. It's no use. Uh, uh, guys, if you haven't checked out cop TikTok, it's uh, it's pretty good. Um, Is so, there like cop Twitter? Um, uh, it's oh no, there is because um, a bunch of SPD cops actually got in trouble because they were on Twitch and somebody had asked them. I think it was about it was probably before Charlene Lyles, you know, asked about one of the other many murders, right. and they basically while playing the shooting game, obviously, were just yeah. like, oh yeah, fuck them. You know? I can just like, I so, can imagine that. So yeah, it's uh, uh, yeah. 
Yeah. That's not good. Yeah, SPD I, told him to get off of Twitch, but I think they're still on it. Yeah, yeah. I hear you. <laughs> you know, Charlene Lyles was killed in, in my yeah. district by the Seattle Police Department, and that was a tragedy that has, you know, reverberated nationally. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think, you know, before it's one of the reasons why when we're talking about expanding the power of the police and some of the navigation teams to go out to homeless encampments and mm -hmm. separate folks out from public land, it's like... Can we talk about the fact that we have a police department that's under federal investigation? I mean, yeah. imagine if the Office of Housing was under federal investigation for literally anything. Yeah, they don't even carry guns. Yeah. yeah. How how much I think the right in the city and many moderates in the city oh, would say, it, see, they can't – the city, the city they can't. They brought so much shame on the city. Like the amount oh, yeah. of lack of faith and disinvestment in, of trust that that would represent for something like the Office of Housing. And meanwhile, our police department – it's under a federal consent decree, and yeah. people are talking about building new police facilities, and um, I just can't I, – I, I don't want to say I can't get my head around it, but I just want to – I would just say that it's just proud – it's just profoundly disappointing on a lot mm -hmm. of levels that um, we have just seen these tragedies play themselves out so repeatedly, even locally, and we're still falling for a lot of the same shit on this yeah. question. Um, and somebody needs to call bullshit on it. And if that's that's our campaign helping to further a conversation that other activists have been having for a long time, then that's that's the role that we're going to serve both in this in this last thirty days and hopefully for the next four years. Yeah, and it's important. Back in um, I think it was in June when the SPD body count for the year was at four. Right. Sawant had made a comment saying that SP kills more people than like a lot of countries do, which was an absolute fact. And of course, like right wing media mm -hmm. made a big thing out of it. But to make a big thing out of it, I think they actually introduced the idea to a lot mm -hmm. of people who had never considered that before, which right, is that right, yeah. SPD kills more people than like whole countries do. Yeah. And um, it's important to actually like bring those things up and say right. those things and, right. and get that information, you know, yep. out there. Because yeah, it's not getting there any other way. But right, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you awesome. so much uh, for coming back to the boat, Definitely. Sean. Love the boat. Uh, yeah, always good to have you. Uh, this has been fun. Um, you know, Brian and I are really stupid. We we might just come out to that uh, cop thing on Wednesday. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we are extraordinarily dumb. So you guys should get uh, some get some cop probably. costumes. Those are in. Uh, oh the, yeah, yeah. Red light. Some Hell yeah! Hey guys, <laughs> we can um, take up two of the safe Seattle seats. <laughs> just we'll just middle. wear T-shirts uh, with some of the things we've said about cops on this podcast on the front of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, cool. Anyway. Uh, good times, everybody. Thank you again so much for coming. Awesome. Um, yeah. I will be there at your victory party, Let's wherever it. it ends up happening. And um, yeah, thanks again so much. And, awesome, guys. Yeah, see everybody out there Thank on you. that that campaign trail, knocking those doors. Heck yeah! All right, All right. thanks for coming on. <laughs> okay, if we're not gonna Whoa, do that, oh, partner, that was a. Mighty fine interview with Sean Scott from District 4. But over here on Greg's boat, <laughs> where it's just me, my horse, and Greg, we gotta be setting sail. Uh, this is getting really confusing. Uh, thanks again to <laughs> Sean Scott for coming back to the boat. Uh, we had a nice time. Uh, you know, it was very, it's a, I, I think, a romantic ambiance in here. Mm -hmm. uh, we got the fire going. 
Uh, we had candles. actual food, not just gummy candies for a change. Uh, yeah. So um, anyway, thank you again, Sean. Everybody get out there. This has been Seattle Sucks. You can, uh, you know, subscribe to this uh, using your... You can use a if you go to your internet browser mm-hmm. and you bookmark this page. Um, I get I think that's the same as subscribing. You can also probably copy and paste the URL into your podcast app. I don't know or listen to it's it. It's really on, lo-fi. Yeah, subscribe. Oh, it's on, on iTunes. Spotify it's on the Spotify. We also things. have a uh, uh, we do two episodes a week. There's another one coming out in a few days that is available behind the dreaded paywall. Yep. And that can be found uh, at, I'm, I'm going to guess the URL is something like patreon.com slash Seattle sucks. Does that sound right? Sure, whatever. I mean, if you want to listen to that sweet, sweet content, of which we have a lot of episodes back there, uh, all you got to do is take $5 once a month, put it in an envelope, write Greg's boat, the marina, care of the marina, put a stamp on it, put it in the mail, and you're yeah, good to go. It's like the IRS. They just know. Yeah. Um, so, uh, check it out. Yeah, I guess we are going to talk about, uh, among other things, probably that, uh, what I'm sure is a, uh, totally good and normal take from the cowgirl in the Seattle Times mm-hmm. on the next Patreon episode that You'll we're about to record. More voices. Uh, so thanks for listening, everybody. Um, thank you, Colin, for, uh, leaving us here alone. Yeah, thanks a lot. Jerk. Colin, uh, we dedicate this. <laughs> Uh, we dedicate this episode to our fallen comrade, Colin, <laughs> who is uh, apparently dead now. Um, if you're so having a beer while listening, pour a little out. If uh, you tuned in every week to hear uh, Colin's voice, um, you just hit that unsubscribe button. Yeah. Dead uh, one of us will just start saying, I'm sorry all the time <laughs> to fill in the void. <laughs> <laughs>